I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you William Green is the author of Richer, Wiser, Happier, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. Over the last quarter of a century, he has interviewed many of the world's best investors, exploring in-depth the question of what qualities and insights enable them to achieve enduring success. On this episode, William shares stories and insights into the best investors of all time and how this can improve our thinking to become richer, wiser, and happier. Anyone looking for a new job this year, or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. William, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm terrific. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, I'm excited for this one, but I would love to start at an interesting place. And I think a great place to start is around horse racing. And I'm wondering how horse racing influenced your, your frameworks for thinking decisions and even your later career path. Well, I was a slightly subversive child. I, I went to this very posh English boarding school called Eton, which is, I think, about six or 700 years old and, and was supposed to have become this kind of clean cut, nice gentleman uh, like Boris Johnson and Prince William and, and Prince Harry, who were there. And when I was about 15, I became kind of obsessed with horse racing. And so instead of going rowing or playing cricket or doing sort of charitable work as, as the better behaved kids did, I actually would sneak out on these kind of lazy summer afternoons to Windsor, which is the neighboring castle where the queen has a, at the neighboring town where the queen has a castle. And I would go to what in England was called a turf accountant, which is really just a euphemism for a betting shop. And so I would spend my afternoons with a friend of mine who, who ended up actually going to prison for a while, um, betting on horses. And what I really loved about it was the idea that basically you didn't have to get your hands dirty. You know, I was pretty lazy and I thought, well, this is the most fantastic thing. If I could possibly make money without having to work, this would be fantastic. And so initially it went kind of well and I made something like hundred pounds off a few sort of lucky bets. And I thought, wow, I'm incredibly smart. And then I started to lose. And I just realized at a certain point, wow, I actually have no edge at all here. I have no knowledge, I have nothing that's going to really help me. And I just stopped and I've never gambled since, at least in a casino or on a horse or anything like that. And, and then a few years later, I'd say about a decade later, maybe a little less, I discovered the stock market. And I just thought, wow, this is the real game. You know, this is somewhere where instead of the house kind of skimming off this enormous amount in terms of taxes and expenses and all of that, this is something where actually, if you can think better than other people, 
you can do extraordinarily well. And that kind of led to this obsession that I've had over the last 25 years with investing, which initially really was born of this kind of lazy, smart aleck quality that I have, which is how do I get rich without actually having to get my hands dirty? And then gradually, because I got to interview all sorts of extraordinary investors over the years, I started to realize, oh, actually, that's not all that this is about. There's something much deeper going on here. And these these extraordinary people, this kind of tiny group of investors who can defy gravity by beating the market over very many years, usually over decades, there's something that they're doing that's different than what everyone else is doing. And that became kind of this intellectual obsession for me to figure out what are the habits, what are the practices, what are the principles, what are the insights, what are the the temperamental advantages that they have over the rest of us. And in a sense, that's that's the overarching question that I'm trying to answer with this book. So would you say one of the underlying threads throughout your career has been this curiosity around intellectual stimulation? Yeah, I'm I'm obsessed with learning constantly and trying to figure out how, I mean, at, at, at the most fundamental level, what I'm trying to figure out is how to live. Hmm. There's, I mean, you want, you want to figure out how to make money and how to become financially independent, how to become secure. But I'm really trying to grope my way through the fog hmm. and figure out, well, is this just a Darwinian dog-eat-dog game and it's all luck and it's all random? Or is the world a little more orderly? Are there ways that you can control your fate? Are there things that you can, tr- can control and things that you can't control? Are there, ways, are there ways to optimize your chances of a happy and successful life? And so I think, I think because, I mean, it's, part, it's partly, I think, because I was a very miserable teenager and I was full of sort of existential angst. And then... And so I, I think there was an element of me trying to think, well, is it all just random? Or is there, is there, is there more meaning here? And how do, I actually, how do I actually build a happy, successful, and meaningful life? And I think when I, when I look at a lot of the people who are searching for the truth about these sort of things, whether it's a, a Tim Ferriss or a Tony Robbins or you or my friends in the investment business... I think a lot of us were people who weren't just kind of coasting through life in a sort of happy blur, thinking, well, everything's great. I think it's interesting that Tony Robbins had a terribly difficult childhood, um, with a very abusive, physically abusive mom who used to whack his head against the wall, or that, that Tim Ferriss had, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of depression early in his life in particular, um, that he's talked about with tremendous candor. And so I think because I didn't find everything easy, um, I was looking for answers. And so there's a kind of restlessness there um, that I think drives me. And then, there's a, and then there's a pure intellectual joy, which is, there's a, there's a wonderful guy that I interviewed for this book, a guy called Matthew McLennan, who manages something like 80 or $90 billion and is in, in, incredibly smart guy. And he, um, he said to me that when you figure out an idea that you reduce to its essence and it feels true, he said it's really like the joy of catching a wave as a surfer. 
And I feel that there were there were moments in writing this book where I I agonized over something for months, and I finally got to a point where I'm like, oh, that's what it means. And it's an exquisite joy. There, there was one point where actually I I came up in in chills about something. I was like, oh, that's true. That's something that's true. And so there's a so there's a there's a degree of angst that probably motivates my search for truth. And then there's also um, a degree of sheer joy of just figuring out stuff that seems seems true and right and in some sense beautiful. Sorry, it's a very long-winded answer. No, no, this is fantastic. I'm actually really intrigued about the clarity that comes for you. And you you mentioned that one instance within the book where you were kind of pounding your head against the wall for a number of months. What is it that leads to the clarity for you the majority of times? I think there is a degree of having to withdraw from the world and think in a very quiet way over a long period of time that that's quite painful because you're um, you're placing yourself almost in this void. There are times when you're writing a book, if you're, if you're like me, where it takes a long time, where you almost start to wonder if you exist because you're not really seeing many people other than your family and a few very close friends. You're very detached from, um, from the normal hubbub of day-to-day life. But I think that quietness that withdrawal from the noise enables you to think quite deeply about some of these issues that are um, that are just kind of knocking around in your head for months. So, for example, there's a there's a chapter where I write about the importance of simplicity, and and so I I have I have a strange mind where I'm reading in lots of different areas. So I might be studying um, Buddhist philosophy. Uh, Kabbalistic spirituality, exercise, meditation, um, investing, um, that, that I'm perennially trying to lose weight. So I'm always trying to, you know, studying nutrition and stuff like that. And then I start to see these connections between them. So for example, at one point, I, um, I started to think, well, that's really interesting that Occam's razor is this idea in science where the simplest solution is usually best. And then I'm thinking, well, when I'm studying the Old Testament, for example, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament, and then it gets reduced to the top 10 list, the uh, the 10 commandments, which I can never remember. And then it basically gets reduced to one, where there was this great sage a couple of thousand years ago who was asked to sum up the entire Old Testament in, in the time that he could stand on one leg. And he said, basically, do not do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Uh, all the rest is commentary, now go learn. And so I'm thinking, oh, that's really interesting. So you have this reduction of 613 to 10 to one rule. And and then I'm thinking, oh, well, Google has this home screen where it's just like this little, it's just a few words and like this little kind of pill-shaped capsule that you type your search into. So there's this tremendous simplicity there. And then you think, oh, well, um, Apple is a company that's entirely built on simplicity because Steve Jobs was inspired by Zen. So I start to get kind of really excited about that, where I start to think, oh, so there's actually a kind of master principle at work here, which is this ability to simplify extremely complex things and 
and reduce them to their essence. And there's a there's a wonderful investor that I interview in the book who, who I profile in one chapter, a guy called Joel Greenblatt, who's this kind of legend who averaged 40% a year for 20 years at his hedge fund, which basically means you turn a million dollars into I think 837 million, which is a, a pretty a pretty slick mind boggling. It's an amazing thing. And when I talked to to Joe Greenblatt at great length, trying to figure out what's the what's the essence of what you do, he said, well, it all comes down to this. He says, value an asset and buy it for less. And he said, that's the entire game. And he said, once you realize that that's the essence of investing, everything else seems kind of silly and trite. And so for me, that part of the joy of writing and of interviewing these people is that I get to worry away at these particular themes and keep coming back at them from the books that I'm reading and from the interviews that I'm having. So I was able to talk to him about this question of simplicity, or I would talk to Howard Marks about it, or or any of the investors that I was interviewing. So I kept coming back to the same principles. And then, so, so, so the principles like deferred gratification, the importance of deferred gratification in a in a world where most people are caught up in this sort of instant gratification culture where you can get all sorts of information instantly, you can trade your stocks instantly with no expenses, you can, you can get every flavor of pornography uh, you know, that you might desire instantly, um, you, can, you, you can just do anything, you can get limitless food delivered. So, so this ability to, to kind of control your um, impetuosity, your desire for gratification right now becomes a kind of superpower. So there were ideas like this that I think I had, that I developed over the years that I thought these are really, really important principles, like the ability to simplify, the ability to defer gratification. And I, I got these ideas from things that I'd read, from my own thoughts, from my own observations, and from interviewing these extraordinary people. And then I just kept going deeper and deeper into them. And then you get this kind of enormous amount of information, this enormous amount of material. And the real challenge is how on earth do I synthesize this? And that's part of what makes writing in some ways quite agonizing, but in so, you know, totally overwhelming. I mean, there were <laughs> there was one moment where my poor daughter, who now is about 19, but when I started the book was probably about 14, where I was just sort of sitting on the floor of our kitchen thinking, I'm just never going to be able to finish this bloody book. What you know, just totally overwhelmed. And here I am being comforted yeah. by my 14-year-old child, who's 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 telling me, no, no, Dad, it's going to, it's going to be great. It's going to be fine. And so I think I write in the acknowledgments that it really wasn't clear at certain points who was doing the parenting. But I think I think that's that's part of the thrill of writing is that you're you're able to go deep on these ideas that are, I think, quite profound and quite helpful. But it's also part of the agony of it, that that if you have a mind like mine that goes all over the place, trying to synthesize all of this stuff is actually, is extraordinarily difficult. And if you're, and if you're trying to get at something that's deeply true, that, um, that is kind of overwhelming. But when you get to this this kind of essence that someone like that guy Matt McLennan was mentioning to me, where it's like catching a wave, or or Joel Greenblatt, where he kept reducing and redu- reducing and reducing the essence of investing to its purest essence. There's something deeply joyful about it because you do feel like, 
oh, I figured out something that, that if not true, is probably approximately true, which is, which is pretty good. No, no, I, I love the intellectual stimulation there. Referring to Occam's razor and the, the simplicity makes me think of mm. uh, Lao Tzu and to, to obtain knowledge every day, add something, and to obtain wisdom, remove something every day. Uh, I'm wondering for you, though, in order to have a, a deep enough understanding uh, of the broad concepts that you can really simplify things, there has to be an, an amount of initial work that goes into that, Correct. You, you can't just automatically start simplifying without having just years of, of knowledge, or, or am I off on this? No, you're totally right. And I had a very interesting conversation with Dean Ornish, who's one of the, this, this wasn't for this particular book, but Dean Ornish is one of the great experts on nutrition and health. And he created this program, uh, the Ornish program for reversing heart disease. And he said to me, I talked to him about simplicity and he said, well, I've done 40 years of groundbreaking research on this. And he said, I've basically reduced it to eight words. And it was, if I remember rightly, move more, eat better, stress less, love more. And that sounds kind of trite and simplistic, but actually those eight words are the essence of, uh, of what he'd figured out about about nutrition, about movement, about the impact of stress on our bodies, and about the importance actually of relationships and community, in t- which I think is something we've seen during this COVID period in terms of our mental and physical health. And he said to me, when you deeply understand something over many, many years, actually you gain this ability to reduce things to its essence. And he, and he, was, um, he was very close friends with Steve Jobs, And he said to me that Jobs used to say to him, I'm prouder of the things that I left out of Apple's products than the things that I put put in. And I think Jobs, partly because of this kind of fascination that he had with the beauty and simplicity of Zen, understood the importance of stripping away things. So I think it it requires a great deal of work to get to this essential simplicity. And, And Matt McLennan, the guy I mentioned before, said said to me that he keeps these ideas in, I, I think in his phone, basically. And he said, I keep going over the same ideas again and again, raking them like a Zen garden. I thought that was a lovely idea. And there, you know, there, I have, a, I have um, various scattered notes about future books that I'd like to, to, to write. And there are, there are a few ideas that I just keep going over and keep adding to. And I have this sense that there's something there that's valuable, but I don't really know what it is. And I think it may be that those books never come over. It may be that it's years, but I think there's something about that ability to, to, to keep going over the same fundamental questions and adding, adding as you, as you contemplate more that I think it's a very, it's a very important habit. And there's, there's there's one remarkable investor that I write about in this book that I call Paul Lounsis, who said to me, who's entirely self-educated, really, he's a remarkable guy, who said to me that there are two books, one by Ben Graham, who's kind of the patron saint of of, um, value investing and financial analysis, and one by a guy um, uh, called Phil Fisher that was written in the 50s, that he said he's probably read 50 to 60 times. I think that's a really remarkable idea that, Often, it's not actually about um, 
it's not actually about breadth necessarily, although breadth is really important. It's also about focus on a few really important ideas or a few really important books. And so you're kind of trying to get this combination of breadth in your searching for knowledge and information and tremendous focus. And there's a beautiful line from Charlie Munger, um, uh, Buffett's polymathic genius of a partner who's now 97, but Munger says, take, take a simple idea and take it seriously. And it sounds so simple that like most great truths, our eyes glaze over and we don't take it to heart. But actually that's something I think about almost every day. When you find a simple idea that works, that's really robust, take it seriously and make it, make it the core of what you do. I'm wondering for you around this synthesizing process, because I know for me, especially like early on, I've just got to read incredibly broadly and this takes months, years, and then all of a sudden it starts to crystallize and becomes clearer. And then for me, I mean, I, I have my, my specific notes and then I distill those down even further. I've got my operating principles that I, I revisit similar to, to what you were talking mm. about with your ideas. For you though, with the number of interviews, the number of years, what does that actual synthesis process look like so you can tease these out and be able to revisit them? The synthesis process is so appallingly inefficient <laughs> in, in my well, case. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And, you know, it's, I, I have this constant yearning for order and this, and then the, the reality, which is that my brain is so disorderly. So I was thinking this morning, I, I was looking at my phone and I'm like, oh, yeah, there's, there's that Wonderlist app that has a list of all the things to do. And I don't think I've opened it in six months. And so, you know, or I still subscribe to Evernote because I, I heard Josh Waitskin, who I love, who, you know, wrote the brilliant book, The Art of Learning, how I listened to him on, on some podcast where he was talking about how, how he uses Evernote and everything's kind of, kind of tagged in Evernote. I, I, I've had Evernote for years and I've never managed to do that. And then I, and then I bought, you know, the, um, this scanner that went with Evernote so I could scan stuff in and, you know, then the fucking thing stopped working and it's now sitting in my closet and I don't have, and I don't have the heart to throw it away. And I, you know, so for me, there's this kind of fantasy of order and then there's the reality. But one, one thing that I find really helpful that I do for this when I'm gathering when I'm gathering ideas about future books, I I like this app things where I I just have I just I, I, it's the most unromantic term for it, but I think in terms of buckets. So I think well, here's a bucket for ideas that I'm exploring for another book, and then I just keep dumping stuff in that bucket. And and for this book, I think I had. It ended up being about nine chapters, including the epilogue, maybe 10, including the introduction. And so I regarded it as here are nine or 10 buckets. And so I would have a Microsoft Word document. I would just keep dumping stuff in it as I thought of ideas or as I read something. And because I take so long over everything, it took me years. And so then when I come to write it, I see all of that stuff. And then I write this enormously long outline that I'm ashamed of just how long it is. It's like if people saw just how long my outline is, I'd be embarrassed. And then I'm gradually synthesizing it and synthesizing it. And so I, I'm not recommending any of this to anyone else, but I think because my mind is very unruly, the idea of having 
having these kind of buckets where I just dump everything in them. And then I keep synthesizing and synthesizing. And then I just go over and over it again and again with the writing. So, so by the time I'm done with writing a chapter, there's basically nothing that I want to change. I mean, there's not a word that I want to change. So there's a sort of obsessive relentlessness to the rewriting and the writing that I think that I think whittles it down to the essence. And so then there are times where I'll reread something that I've written. And I, because I don't have a very good memory, I've forgotten what I wrote. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's actually, that seems true to me. And that's really helpful. And so, so I'll actually read it because it's true to me because I obviously figured it out at some time before. And, and I was listening to this wonderful guy, a meditation teacher, a guy called George Mumford, who was the, the coach to people like Michael Jordan, LeBron James, if I remember rightly. And he wrote a book called The Mindful Athlete that I like. And, and George Mumford said something in an interview with Dan Harris on the 10 Cent Happier podcast, where I think he said he'd read his own book something like 40 times. And I thought that was really fascinating that, that you could actually find your own book really helpful because you'd figured out certain things and got them down into the essence. And so there's something kind of, it might sound self-congratulatory, but actually there are times, you know, there's a part in my epilogue about stoicism and about the, the need for resilience, where I'm talking about the, the way that certain great investors handled extremely intense periods. And there was a time a few weeks ago, where I was having a really tough day and I went in and read that. And I can't tell you how much better I felt afterwards. I was like, oh, well, that's how Bill Miller dealt with intensity when when the financial crisis blew everything up in his life and that's this is how this guy Jason Karp handled intensity and this is you know and it kind of reoriented me so so it's kind of I'm, I'm writing this book as much for myself as for anyone else because I'm trying to figure out how to you know how to how to navigate difficult times as we're going through at the moment yeah, you mentioned George Mumford revisiting his book 40 plus times. Yeah, the, the Mindful Athlete is one I very much enjoyed as well. That has me thinking, we, we recently had on Randall Stutman, who works with a, a lot of the investing legends, a, a lot of pro coaches, things like that. And uh, mm. he, he has his wisdom journals that he's distilled down. Do you have things like that that aren't public, but are a distillation of your own thinking, your big buckets that you revisit? I think what I have that I find really, really helpful is – you can't see this, even though you can see me on Zoom, but my my study where I'm sitting is full of post-it notes on the wall. And I would say every few days, I'm, I'm adding something that I've got from somewhere. So for example, I'm, I'm looking just for my right here, and there's something from this book, Power Versus Force, uh, that says, wisdom can ultimately be reduced the simple process of avoiding that which makes you go weak. Nothing else is really required. And so that's a reminder, for example, and that's pretty random. That's probably one of about a hundred things I have posted here. That's a reminder that there are certain types of behavior, like lying, um, uh, cheating, um, self-delusion, arrogance, vanity, all of those sort of things, that I think at some deep level, people smell whether you're just out for yourself, you're just truly selfish. And there are other things like kindness, compassion, love, mercy, um, generosity that make people go strong to use David Hawkins language. And so that's a simple thing where 
that just happened to catch my eye right now. And then on another wall, this is one of my favorite quotes that just starts, this is, this is again from David Hawkins, and it just starts, simple kindness to oneself and all that lives is the most transformational force of all. And it goes on, it's a longer quote. But in terms of simplicity, I come back to that idea the whole time. You know, you, I spent a, I've spent a lot of time over the years studying philosophy and spirituality and literature and all of that. And because my mind is kind of wayward, I, I'm, I can get totally confused and totally in the weeds. And if I can come back to the simple idea of saying, well, it's all ultimately about kindness. How do you become kinder? But then I, I think one of the reasons why that quote about simple kindness to oneself and all that lives is the most transformational force of all, the reason why that struck me so hard probably was because it never really occurred to me to be kind to myself. You know, I come from a kind of tough, competitive English background where everything was very, um, it was very zero-sum game. I mean, when I, when I was at Eton at, at high school, you literally, there, there, there was a moment where you would sit in a room with 220 other kids from your year, and they would read out loud from 220 to one where you had come in the year. So it's very hard not to become super competitive, um, super judgmental of yourself and others. And I think that's one reason why people from Eton have been so unbelievably successful. I mean, so, you know, even of the last prime ministers, Boris Johnson was at Eton, um, David Cameron was at Eton. It's, it's, it, it works in some way, that tremendous competitiveness. But it's not a very happy place to be in terms of uh, your own mindset. And so, so I think part of what I've done in terms of searching for wisdom is, is reading very widely. And then as I learn stuff, being like, oh, that's something I need to remember. And I literally, I, I, I post it on my wall so that I'll see it. And I, I think that's a very helpful habit for me because, you know, to keep coming back to those same ideas again and again is very helpful. Well, well, thinking about simple principles, uh, I'm wondering now that you've been able to look back on your career, what were you doing early that, in hindsight now, you would have eliminated at a much sooner date? It's a good question. One thing that I was very wary of was having people think that I was exploiting them in any way. And so... The idea, for example, of networking was, would, for an Englishman, would have seemed really tawdry and, and kind of cynical. And so for a long time, I would meet these extraordinary people and I would become friends with them or I would meet them socially. And then I wouldn't stay in touch because I didn't want them to feel that in some way I was taking advantage or that I only wanted to know them because they were successful. And so I did all of these kind of self-harming things where I withdrew from relationships with people who were really kind of wonderful and interesting and would have been happy to be friends. And I think that was my own, that was my own insecurity and idiosyncrasy. And I think one of the great joys of my life is that as I entered probably when I hit my 30s. I, I'm 52 now. So when I hit my 30s, I became more comfortable, a little more comfortable, I guess, 
just saying, well, this is who I am for, you know, all of the flaws, this is who I am. And maybe even more so in my fifties, although not entirely. And so maybe I became a little more comfortable just saying, ah, to hell with it. If I'm just, I'm just going to try to be myself. And so if I meet someone I really like, I, I try not to conceal it. And a, a couple of years ago, I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna organize a book group, for example, and we're just gonna study great literature. And I got these really wonderful people to join who are all writers, they're all extraordinary writers or editors um, of books and magazines, and they're just remarkable people. And and in some ways that was overcoming that fear that somehow I was foisting myself on people who didn't want me to foist myself on them. So I think. I don't know if that's even vaguely helpful to any, anyone else because it's so idiosyncratic, but it, maybe it's an example of the ways in which we just do self-defeating stuff for stupid, irrational reasons. And I, and I think when I see some of the people that I'm close to, partly people that I've written about who are extraordinarily successful, I think they set their lives up so that their relationships are just not a zero-sum game. They're constantly giving and sharing and I'm sometimes just astonished by my good fortune and just being surrounded by these people who are just incredibly kind and decent. And so I think I, I think I needed that paradigm to shift so that I started to understand, well, no, I just want to, I just want to have these relationships that are really kind and giving and sharing where you're kind of looking out for each other. And it sounds, it sounds trite and superficial in some ways, but one of the great investors that I write about at great length is this guy, Tom Gaynor. And he said to me at one point, one of my great advantages is that I'm a nice guy. Hmm. And he said, as a result, I'm just surrounded by people who wish me well and want to help me because I'm always trying to help other people and do favors. And it's true. I mean, he, he let me come and spend two days with him and he's the CEO of a fortune 500 company. And I just spent two days interviewing him and he cooked me dinner and we went to the supermarket together and he's, he has me home for dinner with his wife and just incredibly kind, decent guy. And so he said he actually, he, he views himself as a node in a, in a neural network surrounded by all of these other extraordinary people. And, and so this thing that sounds kind of trivial turns out to be incredibly important that to, to, to be a nice decent sharing person surrounded by other remarkable people turns out to be an enormous, enormous benefit in life. And, and, and when my friend Guy Spear had lunch with, um, with Buffett a few years ago, he, he and another friend of mine, Monish Pabright, who I write about at great length in the book, um, won this auction where they paid $650,000 to charity to have lunch with Warren Buffett. And one of the things that Buffett said to them is, hang out with people who are better than you and you can't fail to improve. So, so Guy once said to me, relationships really are the killer app. So, so just my, my failure to develop these relationships with remarkable people early on, probably because I felt in some way unworthy, was, um, was I, think, I think that was something I needed to overcome. And then I think you have to overcome your sense of agenda, which you probably never totally overcome, at least, at least if you're me. And so you, you have to overcome that sense of like, well, I'm doing this because this could lead to this. And, it, and I think you, 
you have to say, actually, I just, I just really like this person. It's kind of great to get to hang out with them. And so I think gradually you try, you try to elevate your agenda a bit. So it's not quite so self-seeking. And I think people, people can tell whether you're just out for yourself or not. So I, I think, so I think there are, there are benefits as you work on yourself and you become more comfortable with yourself and more comfortable in, in dealing with other people. William, you hit on two, uh, as I view these foundational principles. One is every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So you think about those positive sum relationships, treating others the way you want to be treated. It, it's amazing over time what that blossoms into. Uh, and then the other thing you hit on, which it, it seemed crystal clear when you brought up all the dif- different investors, and that's they're true and authentic to themselves. And I think you can see this in sports uh, with, with coaches or great athletes. They might have different styles, but that style is who they are. And I think that's a really interesting point. Is, is that something you felt that you saw within a lot of the investors that you sat down with over the years? I, I think it's profoundly important and it, it's very perceptive on, on your part. I, I think the ability to become more and more authentic, again, like most great truths, sounds so superficial and so trite that most people don't take it seriously. But I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, if, if not everything, it's certainly a central core principle. And there was a wonderful moment in, in that lunch that Monish Pabrai and Guy Spear had with, with Buffett, where Buffett talked to them about the difference between people who live by an outer scorecard, which is really what we were doing at Eaton, where your, your ranking in the year was, was, um, was read out loud, and people who live by an inner scorecard, where they're really judging judging themselves by their own high standards. And, and Buffett had this wonderful line where he said, you can tell whether you, whether you live by an inner scorecard or an outer scorecard by asking yourself, would I rather be the best lover in the world, but known publicly as the worst, or the worst lover in the world, but known publicly as the best? And one of the things, after one of the annual meetings for Butch Hathaway in Omaha, Guy Spear and Monish Pabra and I got this wonderful private plane back that Guy had rented to go back to New York. And we spent the entire time on this flight talking about the importance of the inner scorecard. And Monish was saying, all, all of the greats in investing, they all live by an inner scorecard. He, he listed all of these guys like, like Lee Lu and like Nick Sleep, who I write about at great length. They, and Buffett himself, I mean, Buffett, he said to Monish at one point, I don't, to Monish's daughters who came to that lunch with him, he said, I don't eat anything that I wouldn't have touched when I was five years old. So he has this ridiculously childlike diet that, you know, for most people, it would have killed them at 50. But, uh, you know, somehow he drinks, you know, rivers of Coca-Cola, cherry cola, I think, and, um, and red meat. And he goes to McDonald's every morning for his burger on his way to the office. And Again, it sounds kind of silly and trite, but what it really is, is him living in this way that's profoundly aligned to who he is. And, and Monish, who decided that he was going to clone Warren, um, which is his term basically for modeling or replication, he was just going to, he was just going to take the, the smartest guy in the investment business, figure, reverse engineer what worked and, and figure out how to replicate that. He, he not only did it with Warren as an investor, but he figured out, well, how do I, how do I clone the way he lives? And one of the things that he decided is, I'm just going to live deeply in alignment with who I am. And so Monish, for example, um, 
gets into the office pretty late. His secretary brings him um, some printouts of emails at around 11, and he just kind of writes a couple of words on the top, which is something that he cloned from Charlie Munger. Um, and then he basically just sits and reads in his office all day, um, except for when he goes out to play racquetball or to go biking. And then he um, and then he takes a kind of guiltless nap in the afternoon. And then he goes home in the evening and he reads until nighttime. And so he's basically just decided he's going to live in complete alignment with who he is. So he said he really doesn't like the whole mumbo jumbo of having to market his funds. He said, I just don't enjoy that. So he decided that he simply won't have any marketing meetings at all. So, so he'll meet his, his shareholders once a year for his annual report, where he talks with total candor about his mistakes, everything that he's done. And then the rest of the year, he just won't talk to them. And, and he won't make any sales calls. And his average day, he, he has zero meetings. And so he's just left his time totally free to think and read and to do what he wants. And in some ways, there's something profoundly antisocial about that. And in some ways, there's something really beautiful about it, that he's structured his life in a way that's true to who he is. And he literally said to me, if I have, if, if I have a lunch or dinner with some, someone, I'll say to myself, did I enjoy that? And he said, if I didn't, I will never have lunch or dinner with that person again. And he said, and he said when I meet someone, I'll say, is this person going to make me better or worse? And he said, if they're not going to make me better, I will just not meet with them again. And so there's something about that that's kind of brutal and kind of deeply admirable that he's basically structured his life to be in alignment with who he is. And I think one of the great gifts of having money is that these great investors have the independence to live in a way that's profoundly aligned with who they are in all of its splendid idiosyncrasy, uh, sorry, idiosyncrasy and peculiarity. And um, I think that's one, that may, maybe that's why I started gambling in the first place on horses and why I became obsessed with, with the stock market is that I think I always had this craving not to be answerable to anybody. And the idea that you could, you could achieve that kind of life by simply thinking better, that's a very beautiful, uh, a beautiful route to success. And, and, and Bill Ackman said the same thing to me about, about money. He just said, I, I know he was a guest on your show at one point. Um, I, oh, oh, sorry, no, that's not true. It was on a different show. I'm sorry, you'll have to. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to have him on. So, so yeah, yeah, he would be he would be great. <laughs> but Bill Ackman said to me, what money was about for him was just independence. It was the independence to to do what he wanted, to think what he wanted, to say what he wanted. And some people are kind of upset by Ackman because he's um he can be kind of brusque and he can seem kind of arrogant. But I think again, he's um I, I, I happen to I happen to like him and I admire him a great deal. But I I think he um. I think he was able to structure his life in a way that he could he could do what he wanted and say what he wanted and think what he wanted and live the way he wanted, and and that's a tremendous gift that the money gives these people. How did that that merger for you happen between uh, the love of investing and, and being able to think along with journalism and how those kind of intertwined together for you? Yeah, it was a long process. 
I always felt slightly sheepish about the fact that I was so obsessed with investing, I think, because I had studied English literature at Oxford, right? And I left Oxford and I thought, I'm going to write screenplays. I'm going to write novels. I'm going to be this amazing, amazing writer. And I, when I was very young, I, I wrote for the talk of the town section of the New Yorker. And, and so I used to joke that I was anonymously famous because in those days you didn't have bylines and, um, in the talk of the town. And so I had these very high-minded aspirations of being a really great writer. And, and I regarded investing as slightly tawdry. I mean, literally when the New York Times arrived, when I was first living in New York, when I was about 21, I literally, I would, I would take out the business section, just toss it away. It didn't even occur to me to look at it. And I think part of what happened is when I was about 25, my brother and I owned an apartment in London. Um, and this is before, before property in London became hugely valuable. And, and we sold it. And so, because he wanted to move into a much grander place and, and I, um, and I didn't need it because I was living in New York. And so I got this sort of small windfall where I suddenly had to figure out, well, what do I do with this money? And so I started to read obsessively about the stock market and about funds just because I, I was like, well, you know, I don't want to lose this money and I want to make it grow. And so I think it was, I think my fascination was a personal one where I was actually trying to figure out this game. And then when I started to interview all of these extraordinary investors as a journalist, when I was in my mid twenties, I just found them fascinating. I mean, to be able to go off to the Bahamas and spend a day with Sir John Templeton, who was probably the greatest global stock picker of the 20th century, or, or, you know, to go interview someone like, um, Fires Serafin, who I went to interview in Houston. And he, he literally had an, an El Greco painting on one wall. And he has this, 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 fifth century Syrian mosaic that he's imported from some Syrian church and put together in, in, you know, his beautiful office in Houston. And I just thought, this is really interesting. This is really good color. I mean, as a novelist, you know, what, what would be better than spending your time with this guy who literally, you know, he has this huge fat cigar and he's, he's sitting there in his, in his office with this priceless stuff. And he's known as the Sphinx because he's an Egyptian who, billionaire who never talks to the media and I'm sitting there interviewing the guy. So I think, I think I saw that there was this beauty to the stories. I, I thought, wow, these are really interesting, colorful characters. And I want to figure out, I want to tell their story, not, not so much as a sort of practical how to, but to figure out, what makes them interesting as characters? You know, how do they view the world? How have they made sense of this puzzle? How have they cracked the code? What can I learn from how they've cracked the code? What ideas can I share with other people about how they've cracked the code? How can I become richer and more independent so I don't have to take crap from anyone um, by applying what they've taught? And so there was this kind of beautiful convergence where... Um, it was interesting as a storyteller, but it's also there's a practical payoff both for me and other people. If you can if you can think better, you actually can achieve total financial independence, which is a wonderful gift for a writer because then you don't have to take projects that you don't want to take, and you have the you have the time to do your work properly. But I think also because because most other journalists 
weren't really investing seriously themselves. They didn't have skin in the game, so they didn't care as much as I did. And also because I had this strange interest in storytelling and literature, I really saw it as a narrative. So, so when I see someone like, um, like say, the, lo- the, the, the book ends with this extraordinary character, Arnold Vandenberg, who was a Holocaust survivor who grew up on, in hiding uh, on the same street as Anne Frank, that's an extraordinary story. And so I'm trying to tell the story of how he survived, who saved him, what he learned, how it changed his life, what we can learn about this kind of inner mastery that he achieved in his own mind in order to gain control over our own minds and to figure out what actually matters in life. And so that's very much that's very much a storytelling approach, a narrative-driven approach to writing about investing that I don't think many other people take. Um, where I'm just fascinated by these people as characters and as and as code breakers in a sense, who are figuring out how to play this game in a in a particularly smart way that the rest of us can can learn from. Yeah, William, that that language resonates deeply in, in terms of figuring out and cracking the code and, and learning how to play this game better. Uh, I loved the story of Annenberg. Uh, that was that that deeply resonated. I don't care who you are. Uh, that's going to move you emotionally to, to some degree, unless I guess you're, you're some of these legendary investors who emotion doesn't seem to play huh. too much of a of a, a part. I, I am wondering, though, I mean, just 25 plus years of sitting down with with some of the legends of all time in investing. Was, was there a an interview or a meeting that just kind of really shaped you early on? I I still wrestle a great deal with the time that I spent with Sir John Templeton 20 years ago. And I think one of the reasons why I wrestle with it so much, and I write about this a lot in a, a, a chapter in the book, is that I didn't really like him very much. And he was this legendary, iconic figure. I mean, he had this extraordinary, extraordinary reputation where he had, he 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 I think he'd averaged 14.5% a year over 38 years, which is an astonishing record. And then he'd continued to be extraordinary in, in his 80s and beyond. And so he's this iconic figure, but I found him extremely austere and stark and kind of slightly slightly judgmental and sanctimonious and holier than thou. And I think it highlighted for me, because he had such extraordinary control over his own mind and over his time and over his money and over his thoughts, it highlighted for me just how chaotic my inner life was, you know, how not in control of my thoughts and my emotions I was. And so I think probably I was, I was predisposed not to listen to him because it would have been kind of painful to look at myself more honestly. And also at the time, I think I was, I was probably somewhere between agnostic and atheistic and, and he was very spiritual and and the joke is that I was super judgmental of him, kind of dismissed him, his spirituality totally. And as I've become older, I've become more and more spiritual. And I and I am no longer atheistic. And I and I one thing you can be sure of is that I've been wrong about this because I've I've basically taken all of the positions. I've been agnostic, atheistic, and spiritual. And so 
So you can just be absolutely sure that I'm wrong at, at some point, but at which point it's not really clear. But so there's a part of me that thinks, what did Templeton figure out that I wasn't ready to listen to? And I think that there's a there's a there's a point in the book where I actually mentioned reading a, some of the books that he gave me back then that he'd written about the laws of the universe, where I literally blushed and groaned out loud and realized, oh my God, this is stuff that he was trying to teach me 20 years ago, that I was too bloody stupid and too close-minded to listen to. And so for me, one of the great lessons of Templeton's life is, is just the enormous importance of keeping an open mind. And he was extraordinarily inquisitive. So he was doing this crazy stuff as I saw it then. Like he was funding with his billions of dollars, research at places like Harvard into whether you could prove scientifically that prayer works. And so he was sort of saying to me, well, does it work better if you say, thy will be done? Does it work better if the person you're praying for is there, if you put your hands on them, or does it work better if they're praying for themselves? And I just was so close-minded that I kind of rolled my eyes at this. And I think one of the reasons why he was so successful was that he retained that open-mindedness. And so, so I think, I think for me, I, I still, I still wrestle with my, um, with, with my initial interviews with him and the fact, and the fact that I was embarrassingly close-minded and, and I, and I try, I try to tread a little more lightly these days and to acknowledge that I just don't know. And, and someone like Howard Marks, who I focus on at great length in the book, said to me, I belong to the I don't know school. And so he really accepts that there are certain things that he just doesn't know. And that sounds in some ways disempowering, but in fact, it's enormously empowering because once you recognize that there are certain things you just don't know, you can stop worrying about them. So if you, if you can't predict the future, if you can't tell whether the stock market's going to go up or down, or you can't tell what's going to happen with inflation or interest rates or stuff, you can actually just say, oh, I'm not going to really worry about that stuff that much. I'm just going to try to find a, find a company and buy it for less, less than it's worth. And that's the game. Or, or buy an index fund and sit in it for 20, 30, 40 years and keep adding to it. And so, so the the admission of your own intellectual limitations turns out to be an enormous strength rather than an admission of weakness. But I think I was probably too too arrogant and too too psychologically fragile to admit my own um, limitations in those days. Maybe, maybe I just become more aware of my limitations as they, they, there's been more evidence of them over the years. Yeah, I wish I had started using the saying, I don't know, a bit more frequently when I was younger and, and didn't wait so long. Uh, mm. I, I love these stories about some of the investors. I, I'm wondering, though, has there been one, if we're viewing them almost like, like an onion where we're peeling back multiple mm. layers and it's just like, wow, I'm just getting deeper and this is more and more interesting. Is there anyone like that who comes to mind for you? One of the most extraordinary investors in the book who I write about a lot and I think about a lot is Ed Thorpe, who I describe as probably the greatest game player in the history of investing. And, and Ed is a model in so many ways for how you want to think and how you want to live. And he's, he's remarkably colorful. I met him when he was 
probably 84 and he looked about 20 years younger and he's kind of like this this handsome unshaven guy who looks just full of joie de vivre and happiness and joy and he you know he i think he he had just got engaged to a 50 year old woman and um and he looks totally fit and healthy and he's wearing his black leather jacket and he just looks kind of comfortable with himself and comfortable in his own skin and ed you can understand why he'd be comfortable in his own skin he was the guy who figured out how to beat the casino of blackjack. And so he was kind of the inventor of card counting. And then he figured out how to beat the casino at roulette. So he and this other guy, Claude Shannon, who was a famous famous guy at MIT, made the first wearable device, I think, the first wearable computer that, that Ed would activate with the big toe in his shoe. And it would basically calculate the velocity of the ball and the wheel in the roulette wheel. So he could say, well, so there are 38 pockets where it could fall. And if I can add this information by knowing the velocity, I can predict with a little bit more certainty than anybody else where the ball might land. And so so he said, you're turning a, a mugs game that's totally random into one where you're adding a little bit of information that gives you an advantage. And so he's just approached life time and time again by stacking the odds a little bit in his favor, giving himself these, these, marginal, um, the, these marginal improvements in his own odds of winning that then compound massively over time. And just that example... I think is very powerful. Once you start, once you see someone like that, you start to say, for example, well, so I, do I have an edge in investing? And I, I asked him this question, like, how can you tell if you have an edge? And he said to me, well, if you don't have any really rational reason to think that you have an edge, then you almost certainly don't. And one of the things that Ed Thorpe does is he says, well, I only play games that I can win. And so why would I want to play the game of picking individual stocks or, or speculating on um, big macro trends if it's not a game that I can win. And so he said to me, for example, for most people, they're just going to do way better to buy an index fund. And he said the market tends to go up over the long term because you have this improvement in the economy, you have this uh, improvement in productivity, and so gradually, gradually, gradually over time, it's just going to continue to go up. And he said, if you can, if you can bet on an index fund for the long term, then you have very, very low expenses. He said, there's no croupier taking the money, uh, which is also a term Jack Bogle used with me, that, who founded the Vanguard company that now manages something like $6.3 trillion. So if you can remove the croupier, who's constantly taking, taking a, a part of um, your, your profit each year, you're increasing your odds that you're going to win. And so you're actually, you're actually going to beat something like 80% of all invest, probably 80% of all the professionals, just by admitting what you can't do and, and, and riding the market over the long run with very low expenses. And so, so I think about this sort of thing constantly. How am I playing a game that I can win? Um, and that, and how do I and how do I stack the odds in my favor um, in everything that I'm doing? So, for example, if it, it, I mean this applies to everything, right? The, the great investors are constantly looking for these asymmetrical bets where where there's very limited downside and very high upside. And so, 
someone like Ed Thorpe, the way he approached COVID, for example, was to say, well, I'm not going to trust any government with this information to tell me what I should do. I'm going to analyze the numbers myself. And so very early on, he told me that I think it was in January or February of, of um, 2020, he was studying the data from Wuhan and was looking in particular at things like unexplained deaths and was making inferences from the 1918 flu pandemic that killed his grandfather to to extrapolate what he thought was the true fatality rate and what was actually going to happen. And so in February, before there was a single death in the US reported, he gathers gathers his family together and he says, I think there are going to be 200,000 to 500,000 deaths in the US over the next 12 months. We need to get supplies now. And so they stock up on masks, about a, a, a detergent, all of these things, a month before anybody else figured out that they should be clearing out the stores of masks and everything else. And he put himself basically in isolation in Laguna Beach, where he has this beautiful home with his, with his wife, and pretty much didn't see anyone except for he would see his kids outside with, with a mask because he was 80, 85, 86 at the time. And so you think about that. That's an incredibly logical approach to life where you're thinking, how do I how do I survive catastrophe? How do I avoid being being blown out of the game? How do I act rationally for myself? How do I analyze the data for myself, not believing what the experts tell me? Which is which is exactly what he'd done with gambling as well. Everyone said, well, you can't win a blackjack, you can't win a roulette, you can't beat the casino. And he said, well, let me study the evidence for myself. And so, I think what you're seeing with all of these investors is this independence of mind where they're just, they're looking around at what works, at where they can get the best information. They're, they're trying to play games that they can win, but where they have an advantage and avoid games where they're going to lose. So you have Buffett famously said, um, how, do you, um, how, do you beat Bobby, how do you beat Bobby Fischer? And he said, well, play him at anything other than chess. And so... So they have this very rational, very pragmatic way of thinking about life. Munger says again and again that he studies what works and what doesn't work. And so for someone like me, who's trying to figure out the code, who's trying to grope his way through the fog of life, these guys provide unbelievable clues about what works and what doesn't work. And so what I was trying to figure out is, what, how, how do I reverse engineer these people and then apply certain things in my life? And, and so something like just that, that simple idea from Ed Thorpe that you want to avoid catastrophe. If you can stay in the game and survive the dip, survive a period like, like this pandemic, you're much more likely to win. And and then if you if you stick with games where you have an advantage, and then if you're a continuous learner like Buffett, so you're just constantly, constantly deepening your knowledge of things that you're good at and that you understand, games where you can win. The, the, some of these principles, they, they're so simple, but when you combine a bunch of these different principles and you take, take a simple idea and take it seriously, the cumulative effect is actually kind of overwhelming. And so what I'm... What I'm kind of trying to do with the book is, is, is synthesize for myself what these super principles are and share it with other people. And so I, and, and with my own kids, because I, I want them to be able to, to say, 
oh, there are certain things that work and certain things that don't work in life. Yeah, to uh, to take the simple ideas, combine them, to, to use a, a Charlie Munger term, a Lollapalooza effect, where there, there's an exactly. exponential outcome there. Exactly. It's funny you, you use that word because I thought about that a lot and I, I thought of using that phrase to describe that and I didn't and I didn't use it. So it's really, it, it shows that you've thought deeply about Munger that you've actually, you, you've used the phrase that I didn't use, but that I, uh, that I probably should have used. Yeah, M- Munger's been formative in shaping my thinking, along with Ed Thorpe, who, who won't be a guest on the show. He gave me the uh, hard no, but uh, to, to, to talk about his thinking process, you bring up a great point in the book uh, about how he, I think it was ran the calculations on the number of deaths by bicycle. And yeah. went for a bike ride one day and realized it was the last time he was going to do that. I just found that humorous. Well, and you have to do that in every area. So, so Tom Gaynor said to me, if I apply Charlie Munger's inversion principle, which is basically, um, you know, Munger took this idea from Carl Gustav Jacobi, the, the algebraist, that you invert, always invert. So instead of saying, um, how do I make this, this a wonderful outcome? You say, well, what, what causes a disaster and how do I avoid that? So, so, so you're constantly inverting. You're constantly looking for what can go terribly wrong rather than what can go terribly right, for example. And Tom Gaynor, the CEO, co-CEO of Markel, said to me, if you apply the Munger inversion principle, you can say, for example, well, I'm really happily married. I really love my wife. Um, He's been married to this woman who he um, dated when he was 15. I mean, it's an amazing thing, right? They've been married forever. And she's lovely. And he said, if if I am happily married, I don't want to wreck my marriage. I'm not going to go to bars and get drunk on my own. Um... If I go to a bar, maybe I have two drinks instead of 10 drinks because I don't want to put myself in difficult situations where there's enormous downside and no upside. And again, it sounds like a trite example, but if you if you think of things like cheating on your taxes or cheating on your wife or cheating, um, lying to yourself, driving too fast in bad conditions, these are all things with limited upside um, and massive downside. So just that simple principle that, that is essential to the greatest investors in markets turns out to be hugely applicable in every area of our lives. And so I, I think of these things constantly. I would say to my son when he was first learning to drive, think about the margin of safety. You know, think about and, and, and you know, remember that there are blind spots. And so before before you turn, you kind of turn and look as well, and, uh, rather than just checking your mirror or going to. Uh, so so these it, it becomes it, th- once you really understand the way that the greatest investors are navigating the world, it becomes profoundly helpful in every area of your life, whether it's deciding what habits will benefit you, how to invest, how to how to structure your relationships, how to structure your time, because they're just these. They're these tremendous pragmatists, and so it's not like a it's not like a journalist who pays no price really if they're wrong unless they get sued. It's not like an academic who has tenure who can just bloviate about things in a totally wrong-headed way. It's not like political pundits where they pay no price for being wrong. With the greatest investors, they have money on the line, and they have millions of people's lives that are affected by the quality of their decisions. And so, I think there's something about the stakes that are involved the fact that there's skin in the game that forces them to be better thinkers and that forces them to, to think about what really works in an agnostic way and just say, well, 
if they're if if it's really helpful for me to meditate, if that's going to help me make better decisions, let me start meditating. If it's helpful for me to to exercise because I'm going to have more equanimity, let me exercise. If it's helpful for me to reverse engineer people who are uh, great investors, let me do that. If it's if it's helpful for me to surround myself with people who are better than me, let me do that. So there's a kind of there's a brute pragmatism to it, to the way that they approach the problem, not just of investing, but the problem of life and solve solve those things that I, I think is profoundly helpful for all of us. One of the, the stories you brought up, I'm pretty sure it was teaching your son driving. You said, every time you're on the road, someone out there is trying to kill you. You just don't know which person it is. I thought I thought that was a great model. Oh, for, I th- I think you've got that from somewhere else. I don't think I said that, but I I wish that I had I, said I could, it. I could have sworn this was from your book, and no, I, I've I been trying to use it all the time when I'm on the road now. <laughs> I, I would love to take credit for it, but I but I I don't think that's from that's from me. But I but I mean, the, there's a there's a similar there's a similar thing from one of the great investors that I interviewed that says you always have to know that the. the when you're buying an asset or selling your asset, there's somebody on the other side of that transaction. Um, and I think it was Templeton said to me, you need, you need to know more than that person. And so you're constantly thinking, not just about your own position, but the position of everybody around you. So you're thinking, well, so how do I, how do I stack the odds in my favor by getting this kind of informational advantage, which is what he was doing. Um, and, so, so yeah, I don't know if that's related, but I, but I, I, I wish I, I wish I could claim your insight about driving. <laughs> well, I, I'm wondering, and this is going to be different for each person, but being able to study all of these legendary investors, distill down a lot of the best mindsets and, and skill sets that they have. What do you think, or which mindset is just the hardest to be able to implement or adopt in your own life? I think one of the things that's very striking to me is how rational, objective, unemotional, and analytical the best investors are. And I'm not. I mean, I, I, my, my, I, I'm not a particularly rational human being. I'm fairly mystical about things. I mean, I, I, I think if most people knew how I actually think and how I actually operate, they'd be kind of appalled. Um, <laughs> And um, so I kind of have to accept the fact that I'm not really kitted out to be a super rational, super unemotional person. And that self-knowledge is actually really, really valuable, both in investing and life. So, so for example, I, when, when the market's going to hell, when it's falling apart, I can't tell you how easy I find it to remain calm. That doesn't bother me at all. I'm I I somehow somewhere deep in my in my psyche, I'm able to buy when everything's falling apart. That's not a problem for me. It's very hard for me to be super optimistic about the future when everything is going well and everybody else is happy. I'm always waiting for the shit to hit the fan and for it to fall apart. And, you know, um, I think that maybe, maybe partly it comes from being Jewish. You know, we were refugees from Russia and Ukraine and Poland. We were always fleeing. And I, I think it's very striking that, that Ben Graham, who came up with this idea of the margin of safety was from the same background. I mean, he, he came from, um, his family came from Poland. I think his grandfather was the chief rabbi in Warsaw. And 
He then went to London where my family was from and then he went to New York and his family had a fortune and they lost the fortune and then his mum lost what was left in I think the panic of 1907 where she had money that all got wiped out then. And so, so she... So she ended up with a boarding house um, that also, I think, went bankrupt. So, so Graham, Graham's obsession with the margin of safety and with resilience was born of the same sort of chaos that my family went through as refugees from, from Russia and, and Poland and Ukraine. And so I think there's a kind of fearfulness to my mindset that um, – certainly would never enable me to be a venture capitalist and have a belief that everything's going to, everything's going to be great and everything's going to turn out. But it does probably position me to take advantage of uncertainty when everything's going to hell. I have this basic sense of like, oh, there's, there's disruption here and, and there's tremendous uncertainty. And this is when people do stupid stuff. And I believe that there are tremendous opportunities at times like that. And so, so just my knowledge of how different my own mindset is from the optimal mindset of great investors is very, very helpful. And so I think one, without wanting to be too self-referential, if I can make this apply to, to your listeners, I think one of the most valuable things that you can do as, as an investor is, is really to be honest about your own psychological makeup, your own strengths, whether you're equipped to win in this particular game of picking individual stocks, for example, of having a very concentrated portfolio, whether you're unemotional, whether you're, um, whether you're inclined to get overexcited when things are good or over-despondent when things are bad. And so Howard Marks, for example, said to me that he's inclined to be fearful. And so he said, I have to be careful and I have to be humble about my limitations, but people are not paying me to be a chicken. And so during the financial crisis, when the market was imploding and nobody would buy toxic bonds of companies that seemed in danger of bankruptcy, he and his partner literally invested 500 to $600 million a week for 15 weeks. And they ended up making something like $9 billion in profits. And it was partly because he knows that he's going to see the world through this filter of, of maybe pessimism and fearfulness and that he has to compensate for it. So I think this ability to be, to be conscious of your own limitations and your own makeup and to create workarounds and to stick with games you can win, this is enormously helpful both in business and markets and life, I think. Yeah, potentially the most important words in investing or life is know thyself. So and that, mm. that definitely applies. Mm. We're going to wrap up here in a minute. I've just got two more and we're going to make sure we link up everything with the book. But the book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, I mean, this is a, a distillation of 25 years of, of some of the most profound minds in investing. I'm wondering, though, other books that you've come to over the years that you've wanted to revisit, relive, rethink about or give to others. Are there a few that come to mind for you that have been really impactful and maybe not as well known? There are. There are books that I read again and again. And one one of the books that I gifted recently to both of my children, I mean, I, I, do, I do this a lot where I, I buy multiple copies of the same book. There's a book by David Hawkins, who I mentioned before, who wrote this book, Power, Power Versus Force. It's a very profound and important book that had a huge impact on people like Monish Pabrai and Arnold Vandenberg. There's a book that, that 
um, he wrote very late in life, I think. And, and Hawkins had been a, a very successful psychotherapist who then became something of a mystic. And I think he's writing from the position of someone who's actually, if you believe in this sort of thing, kind of enlightened and is telling you, this is, this is how it is. This is reality as, as it is. There's this book, Letting Go, that there's one chapter in it, chapter two, where he's talking about how to relate to your own emotions, which was not something we were taught growing up in England, certainly. I don't know if you were taught it in America, probably more, more in places like California and New York than we were in, in, uh, in English boarding school where we wore tailcoats and, and waistcoats and starched white collars um, and, and until World War II wore top hats as well. So we weren't very in touch with our emotions. And Hawkins talks about instead of, instead of judging your emotions or trying to change them, you're becoming aware of them and abiding with them. And I guess knowing their impact on your body and, and gradually by being with them without judging them or trying to change them, the energy behind them dissipates. And I think that's an enormously important idea. And it, it runs also through the teachings of this great um, uh, Tibetan Buddhist called um, Sopni Rinpoche, who's fascinating. I've been doing a course of his online called Fully Being, that I think is a very interesting course. And I think that idea of how to deal with your own emotions is fascinating. And I've, I've always been inclined to think, well, if I, if I have these wayward emotions, whether it's anxiety or fear or self-loathing or despair or sadness or anger or whatever, I should be trying to change them and replace them. And, and Tony Robbins, who I'm friends with and who I admire a great deal, um, focuses a lot on this in the last chapter of his book, Unshakable, where he talks about when, when, you, when you're being kind of um, assaulted with some kind of emotion that's not helpful, you focus maybe on appreciation or love, whatever it is that can, can, can transform that emotion. And I think that's clearly really powerful. It's a very important idea. But there's something really fascinating to me that I continue to explore about this idea of being with your emotions in a non-judgmental way, sitting with them and letting the energy dissipate. And if this is true, which I'm inclined to think because this is wisdom that's come down through, you know, thousand years of Tibetan Buddhism and, and those guys were kind of masters of the mind. That's a, that's a very important and profound idea. And so that, that's a pretty good example of something where I'm taking books from different areas. Uh, so, books by Sopni Rinpoche and his, his father as well, who was a great Tibetan Buddhist master, and this book, Letting Go, from Hawkins. And I'm, and I'm trying experientially to see if that's, if that's helping me. Um, and I, I think that's a very profound idea I, uh, and with great practical importance. And I, and, I, and I wanted my kids to benefit from that as well, because I think I, I do wish people had taught us to deal with our with our emotions at school, you know, in an English school, you, it would be very much, you know, stiff up a little, what's wrong with you? I remember a friend of mine once saying, I was at Oxford with him and he said he was, he was talking to this, this friend of ours and he said, um, uh, yeah, she was telling me she has a problem. And, and he said, and so yeah, I listened to her problem. It didn't sound like much of a problem. And then he said, a couple of days later, she said, I have a problem. And he said, that's strange, two problems. And, and I think that was very much our English attitude of, of um, not really wanting to look too deeply at emotions, which was slightly embarrassing and slightly comical. Um, but I think, I, think, I think Hawkins provides a technique for dealing with, um, uh, 
for dealing with emotion that that I think is probably very powerful and quite profound. It's excellent. I, I love getting some new book recommendations. Uh, Power vs. Force is one that's been sitting on my bookshelf, and then it came up multiple times in your book, so I knew I was going to have to dive into this. Now another one excited about that. I, I know you've sat down with a, almost all of the legendary investors, and this doesn't have to pertain to investors specifically, but is there anyone dead or alive, not a family member or friend, that if you were going to be able to spend the weekend just having interviews with, who would that be? I've spent a lot of time studying Kabbalistic wisdom over the years, which, which for me is the most profound thing I've ever studied. And there was a great um, Kabbalist called Rav Yehuda Ashlag, A-S-H-L-A-G, who wrote these books like The Wisdom of Truth, um, uh, the, the Thought of Creation, these extraordinary books. And you have this sense that... He wasn't, he wasn't making an intellectual argument. He wasn't groping for the truth in the way that I am, where I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm in the fog with a, with a blindfold trying to figure out what, what's true. You have a sense with some of these great sages like Rav Ashlag that they're actually, they're revealing what's true. And there are these extraordinary things where um, he'll say something like, I, I, I reveal one hair's breadth and conceal two. And so it's literally like they've been given permission to reveal certain secrets about the way the the universe operates. And and he had an extraordinary student, a guy called Rav Brandwein, who's very remarkable. And he had an extraordinary student who I met, who died a few years ago, um, uh, called Rav Berg. And you had a sense, I, I've interviewed a lot of presidents and prime ministers and billionaires and legendary people and you had a sense that this guy the rav which means teacher was the most powerful person you'd ever met and um so you know there was a i i suspect you'd get that from great buddhist sages or jesus or whoever you know this isn't a denominational thing i just think there are certain people who who um have overcome their ego to some great extent that and they're just operating at a different level. You have a sense that they're seeing truth. And so I think, I think, I think Rav Ashlag, if I, if I could meet someone that, that would be pretty high on the list. And, and when you were with someone like that, you, uh, you know, when you, I think there is some, a friend of mine who's a very deep student of, of Buddhism said there's a kind of transmission when you're with one of these great Buddhist sages. And I, I do think, I do think it, it's a it's a deeper version of what um, Buffett was saying about hang out with people who are better than yourself and you can't help to improve. And so I think you want to do that in every area of your life with your with your friends, um, with everything. But then, but and and with your teachers. But then there's this beautiful line from Munger that you'll know well, where he talks about also hanging out with the eminent dead. And so Munger, because he couldn't find very many people on earth who were as clever as him. Um, or as wise was hanging out with people like Ben Franklin and, and Einstein through their books and Richard Feynman, all, all of these remarkable people, um, but probably probably um, Franklin more than anyone. And I think what's what's kind of fantastic is the fact that you can create your own sort of board of directors by assembling this group of 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 dead people who can be your guides through life. And so I so for me. It's not so much meeting these people. It's it, it's 
I, I want to have things like Marcus Aurelius's book, Meditations, or there's a wonderful book, The Book of Joy, that Nick Sleep, one of the great investors I write about, recommended to me, which is a, a book of conversations between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Um, those are the sort of books you want to keep around and keep going back to, because you think of people like the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who lived through such difficult times in, in South Africa in apartheid era, uh, they really understand what it takes to be resilient at all times. You, you know, the Dalai Lama's family being cast out of its country, being a refugee for the last 50 or so years. And he'll talk about why that's been such a gift. And, and you see them laughing together uproariously, these two old friends from different, different religious and spiritual paths. And so I think you, you want to surround yourself somehow with these people who give you, um, who give you di direction, direction through the fog. And, and, and it doesn't have to be meeting them. I think that idea of um, befriending the eminent dead is a, is a really beautiful and profound idea. I love the thought um, about going through the fog. Howard Mark shared a great quote in uh, one of his memos a few months back. It's something about we're all walking into the future we're, with our chests puffed out, thinking we know exactly where we're going, and we're walking around blindfolded with a cane out in front of us, something along those lines. I totally butchered that, but it's a thought I love. Uh, your your board of director board of directors is a thought experiment I do frequently when when trying to solve something. I think about how would this person in this scenario think this through, uh, and it's one of the things I I love about your book because it helped me add a few other people to my board of directors. How I can think about some of the, the okay. tough problems in life. I, I want to make sure the listeners can get set up with you and, and the book Richer, Wiser, Happier, uh, which is going to be out now on April twentieth. We talked a lot about what is uncovered, some of the great stories, the distillation of knowledge here. Anything else you want to leave the listeners with uh, if they're interested in picking it up? Well, I'd love to hear from your listeners what they find resonated for them in the book. It's really curious to me. One famous investor who, um, who read it um, mentioned just privately, I'm not going to name him, but you know, one of the most famous investors in the book was, was talking about what struck him most was the number of divorces among famous investors. And he said, yeah, it's, it's understandable because we all got so absorbed by what we did. It was so absorbing that, of course, we neglected our, our spouses. And, you know, maybe they're also kind of unemotional. They don't have great EQ. And I just thought that was really fascinating, but that was what that was what resonated so much. Another another investor said to me the other day, well-known author and investor, uh, was saying that the chapter on high-performance habits had the biggest impact on him. And then Monish Pabrai said to me, the, the, the three most important words in your book are scale economies shared, which is in this chapter about Nick Sleep and, and, and his partner, Zach. And he said that that chapter has changed the way that he sees the world and invests, which is really fascinating to me. It's something about Nick Sleep has, has totally changed this, this great investor who's the character in the first chapter of the, the book. So I'm really interested to hear what resonates for other people because there are, there are, I, I'm, try, I'm trying to share what resonates most with me because there are so many things I could have written about. But so if there's, if there's stuff where, you think, yeah, yeah, this, this is a really important idea and you should read this about such and such because this will really help you. Tell me, 
Um, or if there's someone I ought to interview because they're remarkable, tell me, please. And so you can you can reach me on social media, whether it's um, Twitter, where I think my my handle, if that's what you call it, is William Green seventy two, or befriend me on LinkedIn, or email me, or whatever. But um, yeah, I hope it's an ongoing conversation because I'm not coming at the book with a sense of oh, I figured this all out. I'm so wise. I I, I I'm borrowing the wisdom of these other extraordinary people. And, and trying to synthesize it and pass it on. So I, I feel like I'm on a journey with the reader and I'm trying to provide them with resources that can help them on their journey to become richer, wiser, and happier. Um, but it's my journey as well. So if there's if there's cool stuff you discover that I ought to be thinking about or writing about, please let, let me know. Fantastic. Well, all that will be linked up in the show notes. But William Green, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been delightful chatting with you. Thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.